0: Welcome to the Destiny Church Tees Valley podcast. As you listen, it is our prayer that you are transformed by audacious faith, inspiring hope, and extravagant love. So, in our first session, we looked at this idea that in the gap, the identity, in this wilderness moment, the identity of Jesus comes under pressure. And uh, often, uh, when we're in that in-between moment between where we are and where we want to go, it's often uh, who we are comes under pressure, and so that's why it's really important that we dig into the truth of what the Father says to us, not just what we think about ourselves, because that can, or what others think about us. So we're going to now look at the second big idea in the context of this, and I'll just remind you of verses one to three of Luke chapter four. We'll not read the whole thing because we're now into what we call the three temptations. So we're just going to look now in the next three sessions at each of these temptations. So verse one, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live by bread alone. And some of you will automatically be filling in the rest of the quote, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, before we get into these three temptations, big uh, idea in terms of how to understand them and read them that, that hopefully We'll keep repeating today, and it's a a big thought. Don't, Don't forget this one. This will really help you. When it comes to understanding the temptations, we understand them not by looking at Satan's question, but by understanding Jesus' answer. Okay? So let me say it again. The key to understanding the temptations is to not to look at Satan's question but to look at Jesus' answer. Now that's, that's a, a, a hopefully a key for you that when you read these temptations in the future, um, look at how Jesus responds. Now, why is that important? Because what Jesus is responding to is actually the heart of the temptation. So sometimes, if we're not careful, we read the temptation and it looks like one thing, and I'm gonna show you some of these look like one thing, and they actually are pointing to something else. And it's dead easy to look at sort of that temptation and come to a very easy conclusion, oh, that's what that is. But really, really the key to understanding what the devil is trying to get in this wilderness experience is to see how Jesus responds to it. Because Jesus' response is the issue. He's defending that issue. So what we do is then, when we come to these temptations, we're not going to spend any time apart from the last temptation where Jesus, where, where the devil quotes the Bible. We'll, we'll have a moment over that. Um, but we're not going to spend any time looking at what the devil says. We're going to spend our time in these three issues looking at what Jesus says, because that's the issue we're trying to get to. That's, that's where we're trying to drill into. So when the devil comes to Jesus, it looks like an obvious temptation, right? It looks like, Jesus has been fasting 40 days. He's hungry, therefore, eat. All right? That's what it looks like. But that is not what it is. How do we know? Because of the way Jesus responds here to this temptation. Jesus says, it is written, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But in the Lucan version, man does not live by bread alone. Now, here's a wee clue, another little Bible clue for you. So some of you are wanting to get into the Bible more and study the Bible. So here's another little tool for reading and studying the Bible. When you see the Old Testament part of the Bible quoted in the New Testament, what's really good to do is go back to the original quote. Because often, now not always, not always, but often what is happening when the Old Testament is quoted by someone in the New, and Jesus does this a lot. This is almost like airtight for Jesus. He does this virtually every time. Jesus is not simply quoting a text. So he's not just being clever. All oh, right devil's tempted me about food is there anything in the the Torah about food oh I know I'll quote the Torah that says you know man does not live by bread alone so he's not just quoting the text what Jesus is often doing is using the text as a marker to the big truth that he's trying to get and bring out now this was not just a practice of Jesus Uh, research has taught us that this was a practice of other rabbis in the world of Jesus. And weirdly, it's what the devil tries on with Jesus a bit later on. In other words, uh, the rabbis, the teachers of Jesus' day, would often quote something and expect their audience to either know where that quote came from and understand the passage it came from and therefore understand what they were driving at. Or if they didn't know that, they were expected to go and look at the passage. So when they quote a bit of the Bible, they're not just quoting that bit usually. They're quoting the truth. They're trying to get you to look at the big picture truth in that idea. Are you with me? Now, if, if you are a, a serious uh, person who wants to dig into the Bible, every time you read that New Testament part of the Bible, and especially in the Gospels, and especially, especially with Jesus, when he quotes it, Take a minute. I know, I know we don't always sort of want to do this or like to do this, but take a minute and go back. So that's what we're going to do. So we're going we're gonna to literally uh, follow this little exercise. So where's Jesus quoting? When Jesus says man does not live on bread alone, he is quoting from a part of the Bible that sometimes Christians call the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. Jesus would have called that bit of the Bible the Torah. And Torah means instruction in fact, the first five books of the Bible for a Jew for for a, a, someone like Jesus are like the big engine room of the Old Testament in fact you can't really get the Old Testament because because you can't understand how the prophets and you don't really understand the poetry books and the writings unless you really get the Torah so the Torah is the engine room of the Old Testament that's why Jesus virtually spends all his time there in fact jesus quotes so if you look at the gospels a little bit of information for you some of you will will enjoy this hopefully when jesus quotes his bible remember the only bible he had was the old testament what we call the old testament he would have called it the tanakh when he quotes the old testament he quotes every one of the five books of the torah every one he he's he's a bit of a torah fan all right so he's big into moses so he quotes every book. And in fact, his favorite book in the Torah is this book, Deuteronomy. Quotes it a lot. He likes Deuteronomy. So he's into that. Uh, he, he also likes the prophet Isaiah. Quotes him a lot. And he quotes Jeremiah. And then one or two other prophets. But his, his big faves are Isaiah and Jeremiah. He's into those. Uh, Isaiah is his fave. Okay. And then he only, in the writings section of the Bible, the only bit he quotes is the Psalms. Now, if we just looked at Jesus' use of the Bible statistically, that means just from the evidence of the way Jesus used the Bible, the Torah is the big, heavy bit. Now, all the Bible's important, but in a Jewish worldview, the Torah was heavier than any other bit of the Bible. In other words, you got to get this bit. You got to get into this bit so that the other bits make sense. Does that make sense to you? And if you can, if you can grab that, you, you'll 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 see this when you read Jesus. When you read the Gospels, you'll see Jesus doing this a lot. And what he's doing is he's going back to the engine room. Sometimes he'll call it Moses. Sometimes he'll simply refer to the Scriptures. When he says Moses, he doesn't mean literally Moses. He means. Torah, he means the first five books. And and he's going back there all the time. Why? Because that's the engine room. That's where all the big ideas are cooking, right? And if you get those big ideas, the prophets make sense. If you don't get those big ideas, the prophets are weird, right? If you don't get those big ideas, like some of the poetry books are weird. But if you get Torah, you have to judge the prophets and the writings in the light of Torah. Now, that's what Jesus did. So if you want to follow the Jesus idea, then the, and I, I literally, personally, I follow that idea because it's really helped me to study the Bible. Does that make sense to you? I know that's a little bit of an aside, but this is a day of not only learning to win in the wilderness, but, but we're, we're learning to walk the Bible together. So he quotes the literal, if we were looking for an address of this quote, the address is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. But we're not just going to look at the verse. We're going to look at the passage. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read together at least a little bit, one to six. So if you've got your Bible in front of you, that's the bit we're going to read together. All right? So if you're not sure where Deuteronomy is, don't worry about it. Go to the front of your Bible and then keep working in for five books. So it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. And we're going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 8 because that's the bit Jesus quotes. Now, here's an amazing thing, and some of you may know this. Jesus probably could quote the whole of the book of Deuteronomy off by heart. Isn't that amazing? Um, Now, some of us struggle to remember our pin code. Um, And Jesus and the experts, the experts of the law could probably quote, whole chunks, if not all, of the books of Moses off by heart. They had to because they didn't have personal copies of the text. So they had to memorize it. Now, remember, when the devil comes to Jesus, Jesus quotes this from memory. He hasn't got his iPad with him. He hasn't got his his, his Bible on his smartphone. So he's speaking out of what he knows, what he's learned, what he's memorized. So let's read these verses 1 to 6. Is that okay? Here we go. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. So let me just pause there. Deuteronomy are the words of Moses that he's giving to the nation as they're about to go into the land. It's really important. We we know that background. So that's what he's talking about here. Verse two. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and detest you in order to know what was in your heart. Where have we heard that before? Whether or not you would keep his commands. Look at this. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna. I not that. God, the, the suggestion is from Moses. God made you hungry so that then you would be ready for his bread. Isn't that an amazing thought? He goes on to say this, uh, the the manna which neither you nor your fathers had known, they'd never had this experience before, to teach you, and here's the quote, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He goes on to say this, your clothes did not wear out during those 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and revering him. Okay? So if we put these ideas together, we we see, it seems, some similarities between the experience of Jesus as happening now, And the experience that these people had in their wilderness journey. Because what Moses is quoting in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Who's he referring to? He's referring to the nation of Israel that were journeying out of Egypt. Out of slavery. They were going from where they were to the land of promise. Where God wanted them to go. But there was a big wilderness gap in the middle. Alright. And so he's taking them on a journey towards and on that wilderness experience they have lots of incredible good bad and ugly moments in that particular journey and there are some striking parallels between the nation of Israel's experience and Jesus' experience. Now it could be just coincidence this but it's a really striking coincidence that Jesus quotes a bit of the Torah that's talking about Moses' words to a nation that had come out of the wilderness. Now, look at some of the parallels uh, that are going on here. both of them are having a wilderness experience, and the numbers are similar. The nation of Israel spends approximately 40 years in wilderness, 38 to 40 years. Jesus spends 40 days. Now, that could be just a coincidence, but it's a striking one. Note, secondly, both of are tested in the wilderness to see what they really believe. We've got that in Deuteronomy right there. Both are called to rely on something or someone beyond themselves. And in fact, although Moses is talking about manna, now if you don't know the story of the manna, it was an amazing event. These people were hungry. And God sent this bread-like substance out of the sky. And there would be enough manna for every day. In fact, if they tried to collect more than a day's worth, it went off. Really strange. The only time they were allowed to collect two days' worth was in preparation for the day of rest, the Sabbath, right? So this amazing material falls out of the sky so that they can pick it up. But God only gives them enough for each day. Why? Because he, he wants them to understand it's not the manna that's feeding them. It's his promise. It's his word that is feeding them. He has made a promise to them. I'll take care of you. I'll look after you. I'll feed you. And as if to illustrate that point, he will give them only enough of this bread. So that every day they have to keep looking back to him for the promise. Right? Right? Now, he's not, he's not trying to manipulate them or hurt them. He's trying to teach them something here. This is not about manna. This is about his word. This is about trusting his promise. God could have given them enough for a whole year. God could have blessed them with, with stuff that they never even needed to worry about. But he does this deliberately because he's training them, not simply to get up every day and pick the manna up. He's training them to trust his word And trust his promise. Because here's what he's trying to teach them. Bread alone is not enough to get you into the land of promise. If you want to get into the promises I have for you. You've got to trust my word. You've got to believe what I have said to you. And weirdly and wonderfully. At the heart of this journey. Of this people going into their new land. What's helping them to get there is the word of God. Not just the manna, and eventually the quail and the birds, but but God's word is what's... It's what's and in fact, some of you will know, because some of you know the story, the first time they tried to get into the land, the reason they didn't get in was because they didn't trust his word. Right? That's why they didn't go in. It wasn't because they couldn't. It wasn't because... Uh, that, that, you know, they said these people were giants. That was just their view of them. Actually, God said, go up and take possession of the land. God made them a promise. The land's yours. I've brought you to this land. It's yours. Take it. Take it now. And the reason they didn't go in the first time and ended up in this wilderness experience was because they didn't trust God's word. So what does God do in the wilderness experience? He has to train them. But the next time we get a go at this, you've got to trust my word. If I say you can take the land, it's yours. If I've given it to you, it's yours. So in that wilderness experience, he is literally training them. It's not about manna. It's not about quail. They're the bits that draw our mind because we are physical people. God's training them. That actually, though the manna will feed your, your your body, it is my word, it's my word you need to live by. So he's trying to put his word central to their experience. Because if they will trust what he says, they'll go in. Yes? And it's interesting, in the opening verses of the book of Joshua, God reminds Joshua of his word he doesn't say look at all the men you've got all these amazing soldiers you're ready he reminds joshua of his word as i was with i will be with and if you look at the opening chapter of the book of joshua it is word 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 it's all about joshua understanding if you get the word if you understand i'm with you and my promise is in you then you'll go over you'll take this land if you do what they did 38 years ago, you're going to lose this again. You're, you're going to have the same experience again. So they missed the land the first time round, not because they couldn't take it, but because they doubted God's promise to them. In the wilderness, they have to learn to eat the word. And Joshua, who leads them in, is reminded of God's word, God's promise. You see, see the connection there? So when Jesus says, "Man doesn't live on bread alone," it, it, it just sounds like Jesus is just given a clever response to, a, to an invitation to go down to McDonald's and have a burger. All right, it's not. A, Jesus' answer is not about food, and he knows the devil knows that. The devil is not trying to get Jesus to eat; he's trying to get Jesus to move away from the word of God. If the devil can disconnect you from God's truth, he's got you. Uh, And I'll show you the power of God's word in just a moment. If he can disconnect us from God's promise and God's truth, we are dead in the water. We're dead in the water. Now, now one more little parallel before we move on and, and land this. There is an amazing parallel, and some of you will already know this, and you've connected the dots maybe, but maybe for some of you it's the first time you've seen this, an amazing parallel between the experience not only of the nation of Israel, which Jesus quotes in Deuteronomy, but there is an even bigger parallel to the experience of our first parents in the Garden of Eden. And when the serpent comes to the woman, he says to the woman, Has God said? Now, what he's trying to do, he's probing, number one, does she know what God has said? That's important. Number two, does she understand what God has said? Number three, will she obey what God has said? And he knows that if he can fracture her connection in any one of those three, boom, it's all over. All right, it's only a matter of time, and he's got her, and he's got him. He'll get them both. Because he knows, he understands that just holding a piece of fruit up to the woman isn't going to work. Because she's seen that fruit before. It wasn't the first time she's seen the fruit. She knew where that tree was. She knew what that fruit was. She knew all about it. It wasn't like, oh, wow, I've never seen that before. Well, if only I'd have seen that earlier. No, no. She knows where that fruit is. She knows all about that fruit. He knows the fruit alone isn't going to do it. What he's got to do is disconnect her from what God said about the fruit. That's the killer moment. If he can get her to move away from what God says about it, then she'll engage with that fruit on what she thinks about it. And that's exactly what happens. Suddenly she sees the fruit in a different way. She sees it. He sees good for, their, good, good for eyes, good, good for their flesh. It, suddenly, they look at it and they see it in a different way. Now, it's not that the fruit has changed. The fruit hasn't changed. Same, same fruit. What's changed is, before the serpent came, they saw the fruit through the word of God. Now that the serpent has caused a doubt with the word, They see the fruit through their doubt. You with me? This is so, so powerful. Because um, if there's anything that gets tested in the gap, one of the big things will be what God has said to you. So you start your journey. God said, come on, let's do it. We're excited. God said it. And then we're making the journey and, we're into the journey for a bit, a month, two months, three months, a year goes by. And, and what God said hasn't quite happened yet in the way we thought it would happen. And so, so when the pressure comes on, when the pain comes on, when the disappointment comes on, when it's just not working the way we thought, we then are tempted to say, did he, did he really say that? And the minute we question the word, everything around us looks different. Same world, but it starts to change. And it's not that the world around me has changed. It's it's the platform on which I saw the word. It's the lens through which I'm seeing the word has now changed. I'm now looking at it outside of the word, and I'm seeing it in my own feelings and wisdom. So God has spoken to destiny. My goodness. And I'm sure there have been moments as you've sought God and agonized and fasted and praised. And said, Lord, this is your word. It's what you said. And what the devil wants to try and get us to is, did God really say that? Or, you know, it's been so long since God God said that. Maybe maybe that's not what he meant. Maybe that's not what he, maybe he meant something else. And the minute we sort of go, yeah, maybe you're right. Then the power of that word is broken. Now, it's not lost, but it's broken. It's fractured off us at that moment. And the danger is then, we start to make decisions outside of that word. Does that make sense to you? Now, now that's why, personally, so I, I, I've been a Christian now since I was eight years old, and I'm 52 years of age. So so I've been doing this a wee while. And this morning, even though I didn't get to my bed until one o'clock, right, because of traffic and stuff, I, I was up this morning. Now, I'm not trying to say something to make you think I'm amazing. I'm just telling you this. I, I was up early enough this morning, not just to prepare my heart for today and make sure I had my thoughts in line, but I was up early enough so that I gave time to the most important book in my world. I have no book like this book. There is no book in my world that comes close to this book. This is the book. All right? Because it's the only book I own that contains the word of God. Right. So, So I, birthdays, holidays, Travel days, ministry days, late nights and bed days, I still make room for this. I still have a Bible reading plan. I don't want that to sound religious, although why it should sound religious, I don't know. You know, if I said I brushed my teeth this morning, no one would say, that's a bit religious. Um, we, we, we only get a bit religious when it comes to like, stuff like this. But like I got up this morning, had a shower. I have a shower every day. It's a bit religious. No, that's just what I do. I had my breakfast this morning. That's a bit religious. No, that's what I do. I brushed my teeth. No, no, that's not religious. That's what I do. Okay? So, so so, people sometimes say, this Bible reading stuff, that's a bit religious. No, no, it's not. It could become religious. It could become uh, something that gets in the way. But actually, actually, it's very, very important. Okay? So I'm, I, I've been a Christian a long time, and yet this morning... I got up and I made room. I wanted to invite the word of God into my world. And here's the reason I do that. It's not not so I can just tick a box and say, oh, I read my Bible today, just in case anybody in Destiny Church asks me. I've read my Bible. The reason I make room for the word of God every day is because quite literally without it, I cannot live. Man does not live on donuts alone. In fact, you won't live very long on donuts alone. You'll die very, very quickly. You might enjoy your death, but you'll die very, very quickly. Right? So, man does not live on donuts alone. But, uh, and so the reason I'm making room is not because I'm a minister, not because I'm a job, not because, well, you know, I have to do it because someone will challenge me. Faith might ask me, what did I read this morning in the Bible? You no, no. I made room this morning because I've come to understand If this word is not in me, I am not alive. I will lose life. I will, I'm in danger of disconnecting from God's purpose for my life. And and I have to be careful. my girls are here and Dan's here as well. And we've been on a bit of a journey as a family. And I want to tell you, it is the word of God is the central key factor why I am standing in front of you. Now, friends helped, and I can name friends who have been loyal and faithful and picked us up when we fell down and looked after us when the world uh, had their views. Um, Family, that's a factor. Uh, Strong Christian community that we were a part of, that's a factor. But I want to tell you, when, when none of those people were around because they had to get on with their own lives, it was the word of God in me, in us, that held us. Right? Now, when you're in the gap, that's what he's after. Has God said? Said to the first woman, uh, and by proxy to, to the man with her. Has God said? Did he really? Did he really say that? Um, turn these stones into bread. It's, it's not about bread. He's saying to Jesus, Do you really trust the word in the wilderness? Are, are you going to bank the farm? on this word? Or or are are you open to other suggestions? With me? And remember, you are a fundamentally spiritual person. You've got a physicality to you, but you are a spiritual being who just happens to have a physical tent. So the big issues that keep you alive and drive you are not physical. Now, we need to look after our physicality. I believe in that powerfully. But The big issues that keep you alive as a spiritual person are fundamentally spiritual issues. Does that make sense? So we can be surrounded by amazing people, but if the word is not alive in us, there's nothing all of those people can do. It's like they're dragging us along. And that's good. And maybe they they keep dragging us until the word lives in us. But, But actually... The word has to live in us. So so that's come back to destiny. If the word's living in destiny, then we keep holding on to that in that gappy moment. In that moment, we're going, when's this going to happen? When's God's word that he promised going to happen? We keep holding on to it. Because the minute we say, maybe, maybe, he didn't say that. Maybe we got that wrong. The minute you say that, something gets fractured. And the devil wins a bit of a, a war, a battle, uh, in the context of our life. Does that make sense to you? So, so why is this word so important? Why was it so important to Jesus? You know, you know he, here's the paradox. Here's the tension. Jesus was the Word. I mean, the Torah that I uh, and that that squiggly writing on the back of that 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 screen. That that's an actual uh, image of the Torah. That you know, Jesus. Jesus didn't just learn the Torah. He was the physical embodiment of the Torah. He he was the Word, and the Word became flesh. So here's the paradox. Jesus is the Word, and yet he had to learn the Word. Jesus is the Word, and yet he had to hold on to the Word. He couldn't just fall back and say to the devil, I am the Word, who do you think you're talking to? No, no, He, he, he doesn't go back to this, I'm the Word. He goes back to the Word. It is written. And he wasn't just saying it's written in the Torah. It's written in the text. He was saying, it's written. It's written here. I've got this. And I'm not budging from it. With me? So so when it moves from being written in here to being written in here, boom. Now we are in the zone. That's, that's when we can work through that gap. Hold steady. Even when everything seems to suggest God's gone on holiday. With me? That makes sense to you? So that's why I'm passionate about the word of God. So so four big things about the word of God before we go to lunch. I promise you, we'll land this by twelve Don't worry. So some of you look, four, four things. That's gonna take forever. Here we go, are you ready? Um, so why is the word of God so important to us? Why was it so important to Jesus? Because it contains life. So this is what makes The Bible on your desk or on your iPad or your iPhone, so different from every other book. Here's what the Bible says of itself. So this is a quote from uh, Paul. Uh, We know him as the Apostle Paul. And he says this, all scripture is God-breathed. And he goes on to tell us why it's so useful. It's It's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. He goes on to say, so that the man, the woman of God can be fully equipped To do all the things God's called. Beautiful, beautiful quote. Well worth memorizing that. Going with that. Now, you have to just trust me on this. And some of you will know this from your studies. But that word "God breathed" is the only time it's used in the whole of the New Testament. It's a pretty, beautifully, gorgeously unique idea. And what Paul is saying, essentially, to us, is that the scriptures we have aren't just words. Now, however you end up understanding the Bible and how it came to us, and don't be distracted by that at the moment. This isn't just, so here's how I understand it. It's not just words. I dare to believe that the words not only came to me by the breath of God, but the words contain the breath of God. Now, if I dare to believe that, here's the idea that could happen when I'm reading the Bible at half past five in the morning in my hotel room when I'd prefer to be sleeping, right? I, I dare to believe that as I'm reading Zechariah, which I read today, right, as part of my readings, as I'm, that the life of God can come out of an ancient text and bring life to me. All right? Without a band, without an atmosphere, without an emotion, the word of God can speak. Now, if you are daring to believe that with me, then that's why it's really important. Why do you listen to? The, so if you struggle to read the Bible, then, then listen to it. So there are ways to skin this cat that can help you. If you're struggling, maybe read the Bible together in a group. No, you know, as Christians, we don't practice the public reading of the Bible the way I think early Christians would have done it. Um, read it out loud. When I read the Bible, I read it out loud. Because I read it and hear it. And it's amazing. Sometimes you hear things because you hear it that you wouldn't hear if you just read it. Really amazing. Hear it read out loud. Now I do that every day because I this is why this is why I do it. Because I believe this these aren't just words. Now they are words, and I've spent my whole life trying to study and understand the words. But it's not just a book, it's breath. God made the first man. There he is, lying on the ground, a perfect human. Absolutely perfect in every way. And then he breathed. Literally in the Hebrew, it says he breathed up his nose. (laughs) That would have been fine in that context. So he breathed up his nostrils. And the man became a living soul. The human on the ground came to life because of breath. And here's a lovely little image. I want you to see this. And I'm just, I may be stretching this poetically too far, but in order for God to breathe up Adam's nose, God would have had to get right in Adam's face. So, So when you have the courage to put your face close to the word, you're giving, forgive my language, you're giving God the chance breathe. Up your nose. Come on. It's powerful stuff. That's why I do it. I want God's breath. Because here's what I know. If if I've just got my brain, I'm dead. But if I've got his breath, I live. You with me? Let it let it speak to you. Breathe. It. Let it breathe. Don't just rush it. Let it breathe on. Second thing, why the word's important, because the word creates faith. I heard someone say this week in the context of the conference, everybody has faith, and I disagree. And I know what they mean. Uh, Even a sinner has faith, and they use the old well-worn analogy because they sit on a seat and they have faith in the seat. That's not what we are talking about here. This faith, not everybody has, because this faith only comes one way. This faith uh, isn't me just working myself up. This faith isn't just me applying my intellect. Okay, that looks like a solid chair. They're all sitting on chairs, therefore. So the reason I sit on that chair is because intellectually I've gone through a process that says that chair must be able to hold me up. That's not faith. That's not this faith. This faith is not coming out of my intellect alone. This faith is coming out of his word to me. Uh, And here's what the Bible seems to teach me. Again, this is Paul helping us with this. He says, faith comes by hearing. And then he goes on to say this, uh, hearing the message, hearing the word. The, The old King James, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's how I memorized it. But faith comes from hearing the message. And he goes on to say this, and the message is heard, what? Through the word of Christ. So the faith we have is not just my intellect at work. The faith I have sometimes can even, it can't be explained by my intellect. As an eight-year-old boy, I had a revelation that Jesus was the Son of God. No one taught me that. I hadn't been to Bible college yet. I didn't even fully understand what it meant. But I had a revelation. I saw that Jesus was the Son of God. And that revelation created faith in me to become what I would say to you was a Christian. A follower. Now, I'm now 52. And I've never for one moment in my life doubted Jesus is the Son of God. I've had other doubts about stuff. But I haven't doubted that. Why? Because that idea wasn't my brain that idea was word creating faith and when word creates faith it moves beyond the limit of your brain now still your brain's still involved don't get me wrong we're not disconnecting our brain taking our brain out but but it's beyond my brain there's there's things i'm believing that are are outside of the limit of my intellect i'm believing something that looks preposterous but I believe it because that word has created faith. That's why it's important to open your mind to it, open your heart to it. Here's the third one really quickly. His word shapes our focus. So it creates faith. Thirdly, shapes our focus. So let me introduce you to a verse that I recite every single day. Uh, I pick up uh, the Bible. I kiss the Bible and I recite this prayer from the Psalms: "Open my eyes, that I may see wonderful things." In you. Now, the reason I pray that prayer is fundamentally for two reasons. One, I understand the powerful spiritual principle that I can't really understand this book properly without God's help. This is the paradox again, and I'm. You know, I've been in Bible college, I've taught in Bible college, and I would encourage people to go to Bible college, but there are some things that can't be learned alone. There's learning, and then there's seeing. Job said, I have heard with my ears, but now I have seen with my eyes. <laughs> it's a beautiful paradoxical statement. It's gorgeous. So, so, there's just so, so I pray that prayer because I know my brain alone won't get me to where I need to go, although I use my brain. So don't hear what I'm not saying. But second reason I pray that prayer is because I know if I see his word, it changes what I focus on. So if I'm in the gap and I've got his word, I'm focusing on his word, not on the gap. I'm focusing on his word, not on the disappointment. I'm focusing on his word, not on the attitudes and the opinions of other people. I'm focusing on his word, even though it looks like the word's not working. So what it's doing is, it's helping my eyes to see what doesn't look obvious. With me? That makes sense to you? So, so we. Pr- I, I pray that prayer because I need God's help to see, but also when I see, it changes the way I see. My world starts to look different because I'm seeing it through the lens of the word. And then here's the last idea. His word instills in me fortitude. I think Jesus has amazing fortitude. Jesus was seriously tough person. Not a pushover, not a wimp. He was seriously strong. And not just because he was physically strong, because he was rooted, absolutely rooted in God's truth. And he was able to resist. Here's what, again, a beautiful quote from the Psalms. I absolutely love this. Psalmist David said, My soul faints with longing for your salvation, but I have put my hope in your word. When our hope is in his word, it gives us amazing strength to keep going in the gap. And there have been moments on my journey where I've got up in the morning for one reason and one reason alone. His word is living inside me. If I'd gone on my feelings, I wouldn't have got up. And if I'd gone on my feelings and emotions and my experience at that moment, I would have got up and run in the wrong direction. And I found myself almost like uh, 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 almost getting up and forgive my language it uh, almost defiantly defying what I felt defying what was going on around me and the defiance was not because I'm a big strong tough personality and I've got loads of testosterone no no my defiance was because I had his word so let me let me share one experience then we'll have lunch in our home uh, at the time of one of our most difficult space experiences gap experiences we had a statement on, on the stairway as you went down the stairs it was on the wall there was a quote from Proverbs chapter 3 verse 3 he blesses the home of the righteous and in one of my darkest liminal moments I used to walk down those stairs and the devil used to literally taunt me His stinking voice say to me, "Bless the home of the righteous. Your family's going down the toilet. Your life's over. You're you're going to be destroyed. This is. I'm quite literally now. Please forgive me. It sounds it sounds a bit sort of you know spooky, but literally, I would reach my hand out to it. I would I would and I would say, I I believe this. He blesses the home of the righteous. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 112, and I would literally quote it every morning." Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. And there were days when when nothing was backing that idea up. There were days when everything was saying, what a load of nonsense. But the word was Living. And the word was creating hope. That's why the devil's after the word. If he can get that word, he's got Jesus. Theoretically. If he can get that word, he gets Eve. If he can get that word, he gets a nation about to cross a river, a sea, into promise. If he can get that word, he's got us. And that's why in the space, you've got to hold on to the word. What has God said to you? What's the promise he's given you? What's the things you know, you know, you know, you know, you know, is his words. Not too much cheese or pizza on a Saturday night. You know this is God. And you hold on to that. His word produces fruit in our life. And if we will give it a chance to speak, it will speak. I love what Psalm 19 says says this. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And when we hold on to that, my goodness, it gives, it produces something in us. It's powerful life. Transfer. Why don't we just stand together? If you can, if you can stand, please stand. If you can, please remain in your seats. It's absolutely fine. We're going. You can probably smell lunch is ready. So we've been talking about the food of God's word. Now we're going to have some manna in just a moment, which will be great. We thank God for that and the people who've prepared it. But listen, in a a moment you're going to queue up, you're going to take some food. And you know you need to eat. Eating is essential to your survival. But not just eating. Eating the right stuff is essential to your survival. Amen? If we're going to not just survive but thrive, we don't just need to eat, we need to eat right, we need to eat well. Now you're about to physically do what we've spent the last 45 minutes or so thinking about spiritually. In the same way that I'm going to enjoy my lunch, the Lord wants us to think about this word and to create in our world if possible, an everyday space to give this word a chance to breathe life into us, to, to create faith in us, to build fortitude in us, and ultimately produce fruit in us so that we live a focused life. If, if we let that, this will carry us in the gap. And if God has given you a promise, I want to encourage you today, dust it off. Get it out again. Get your journal out again. That that place you wrote it down, that, oh John, no, no, get it out again. Say, Lord, this was your word. This is your word. May it create in me new faith for the journey I am in. Amen? Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you that it's come to us in this physical form, a form that's so... Uh, really, in terms of biblical history, quite unique, that someone like me could have all of this incredible book in one little cover. And I'm so grateful. But Lord, I pray it it doesn't just remain words, but it becomes word. It doesn't just remain an idea, but it becomes revelation and truth. And I pray for words you've spoken over people in this room that today the word of God will come alive again in them. Words you've spoken over this church, that they will live in a fresh, revelatory way. Words that you have said, that we know, we know, we know, we know was you. It wasn't, it wasn't imagination, it wasn't us, it was you. Lord, we dare to believe those words again. So that faith will arise and that so, Lord, we will process in, through, and beyond the gap or the wilderness that we are in. Lord, may your word dwell in our hearts richly in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to know more, please visit us at www.thedestinychurch.co.uk